Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Bridgepoint Church. Stay tuned after the podcast for a short message, but for now, let's jump right in. All right. Well, today we are kicking off a brand new series called As It Is in Heaven. And the title for the series comes from that line in Jesus' prayer where he says, God, would your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's been said that you should never pray a prayer that you're not willing to be the answer to. And really, I think this hits at the heart that if God wants to bring his kingdom and he wants it to be done on earth as it is in heaven, then what does does that mean for us? Like, what is God's mission and purpose in the world, and how can we be a part of that? And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks, today I want to spend uh, the majority of our time talking about what is God's mission in this world, and then I want to give us some very practical kind of takeaway application points, and each one of those points we're going to flesh out even more in the upcoming weeks. And I think this type of series is so important because a lot of us, we, we hear the phrase, what is God's mission? And maybe from our background, how we grew up, what we assume is that, well, there are people who are sinful and they're going to hell. And so God's trying to save them before this whole earth burns up. And so really God's mission is all about getting people to heaven when they die. Now, while there are parts of that that are true, the reality is God's mission in the world is so much bigger than that. Because if God's whole purpose is just where you go when you die, then why does it ever matter that we do things like provide clean water in developing countries, or feeding people who are hungry, or meeting the needs of people living in poverty. Why is any of that important if all that matters is where we go when we die? Now, I do think that we have those promises, but God's mission in the world isn't just for a life that is to come. He wants to work in this world and do something now. And so what does that look like? Well, to answer that, I need you to give me, if you've been at Bridgepoint before, you have likely heard this. And so I know the temptation when you've heard something familiar, you want to zone out. Give me 10 minutes, please, to set the stage. Because if you're newer to Bridgepoint, kind of our approach to the story that the Bible is telling is maybe a little bit different than you've heard before. Now we're going to start in the same place where anybody starts when they are trying to understand the story of the Bible, and that's Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It's like the first Bible verse we memorize, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But verse 2, I love it. It says, now the earth was formless and empty. My favorite translation says it was wild and waste. And darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. All right, so from the very beginning pages of the Bible, we see that the Spirit of God is right there. And where is the Spirit of God? Over the what? Waters. That's the audience participation portion this morning. So God's Spirit is hovering over the waters. Now, remember, this is not a text that was written by 21st century people to 21st century people. Otherwise, there'd be a lot of, like, that's bussin' or that's cap. I don't know if that's what the kids say. So my kids say I have no idea what they're talking about. But it's written by ancient Near Eastern people to ancient Near Eastern people. So we have to understand all the things that they would have naturally keyed in on. For example, the fact that in the ancient Near East, water always represented chaos and disorder. Because think about it, they live in a dry climate. And so it's not like they're going to go boating over the long weekend. 
In fact, it's a fisherman who would go out and they'd come back with stories of these great storms that popped up and threatened to capsize the boat or these giant creatures living in the depths that would sometimes eat fishermen whole. And that's even if they came back at all. And so water always represented chaos and disorder. So the story of creation is one where there's wild and waste, it's formless and empty, it's chaotic and disordered, and the spirit of God starts to bring order out of that. So notice how, how does creation play out? God separates the light from the dark, the ground from the sky, the land from the sea, and then he starts to populate all those different arenas. God is bringing order to the disorder and beauty to the chaos. That's his plan for creation. Now, God is not going to do this alone. So he carves out this slice of heaven on earth, this garden in Eden. And I, when you read the description of Eden, uh, I used to say that this was, it was perfection. But now I just try to use what the Bible says. It was good. It was teeming with life. There's an abundance of resources. And not that perfection's a bad word, but it kind of evokes in my mind this picture. Like you ever go to like your aunt's house or your grandparents? house and they put plastic sheets over all the furniture because it was perfect and you don't want to mess anything up and you kind of get this picture that God's like this is perfect so don't screw it up but that's not at all what it was it was good there was resource there was so much that God wanted the whole world to look like this and so he creates Adam and Eve in his image and to be made in the image of God does not mean we look like God it means we act like him I mean, think about the commands Adam and Eve were given. Be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Go out into the, the wild and waste and bring the chaos into order. He said, I want you to work in the world for beauty and goodness and then watch over it to protect it. Like God wanted Adam and Eve to partner with him in his mission to expand the borders of heaven on earth. Now, you know the story. There's a lot of trees in the garden, but two in particular are named. There's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, listen, you guys, I want you to, for this to be your home base of operations. You can eat from any tree. You can eat from the tree of life and live forever, but just don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Trust me to decide what's good, what's evil, what's right and wrong. Let me be your source of wisdom. And if you do that, we're going to see this whole world changed. But Adam and Eve, you know the story. At some point, they decide, you know what? I'd like to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'd like to be in charge. And see, that's the thing that resonates with me so deeply about the story of Adam and Eve. It's not just that it's a story that happened. It's the story that has happened to me and to every single one of us. We've all made choices in our lives at certain moments that we want to be in charge. We want to be the source of what's good and evil. And as a result, when Adam and Eve sinned, sin and death enter into the world. Now, we unpacked this a lot when we did our series going through Paul's letter to the Romans, but when the Bible talks about sin and death, they're not just things that we experience. They're actually powers at work in the world. So we commit sins, but then the power of sin uh, starts to dominate over us. We become slaves to sin and death. Here's an example of, of how this works. Hopefully this makes sense. But um, when sometimes we'll talk about pornography as a sin, which it is, and we'll talk about the effects of pornography on the individual who's consuming it, which, by the way, studies have shown that there are a number of like really young, like teenage boys who are experiencing ED at record heights because there's just so much access to free and available pornography right on your phone. It also changes the way people see one another. Instead of seeing them as the image of God, we see them as objects to be used for our pleasure. 
So there's a lot of effects that pornography has on us as we consume pornography, but as we consume it, we also create a market for all of these pornographic sites and companies. And regardless of how you want to look at it, examine it, how you want to slice that, that cookie, I don't know if you slice a cookie or whatever, but when you look at it, the, the porn industry and the human sex trafficking industry are inextricably linked together. And so when you consume it, you're creating a market for human trafficking. And then on top of that, the more it's consumed, the more it creates a culture where we live in a highly sexualized culture. Like you watch TV, I mean, it's all around us. And so the culture says it's really not that big of a deal, which is why, despite the evidence showing how harmful pornography is, if somebody who is not a person of faith, who there are a few high-profile people who are not people of faith who have spoken out against pornography, it's very shocking to the world because it's like, wait a second, this is just a normal thing, and it doesn't harm anybody. So what's the big deal? And so then we live in a culture that says it's okay. So then we continue to look at pornography. We continue to create a market for it. It continues to impact us. And it's this whole cycle wrapped up together. So yes, there is a sin we commit, but there is a power of sin at work in the world that keeps us enslaved and makes us think that the way the world works is just the way it's always supposed to be. Does that make sense? I feel like I just like put a fire hose at you, but I'm just trying to illustrate the point here that Adam and Eve, they didn't just sin, they unleashed these powers into the world. And as a result, they have to leave the garden. They go out into the wild and waste. All of a sudden, they don't have free and abundant access to resources, but it's going to be hard work to get food out of the ground. All of a sudden, their relationship with one another is broken and there's relational conflict the relationship with God is fractured as well. And up to this point in the story, you're like, yeah, Matt, we've heard all of this before. This is like everything we've ever heard. But for most people, what we think then or what we assume is, well, Adam and Eve messed everything up. This whole world's going to burn. They're going to hell. And so God's just trying to save as many people as he can before the ship goes down. And the problem with that is, well, the Bible, because the Bible doesn't talk about the story, the scope of history like that. In fact, if we go to the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21, it's not technically the end, it's the second to last chapter, but in the book of Revelation, there's this guy named John who gets a vision from God for where the whole story of history is headed. Like, where is this whole thing going? And we get a glimpse of that vision in Revelation 21, verse 1. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So when history reaches its climax, John sees a new heaven and a new earth. Now, John wrote this in Greek and there's a couple different words in Greek that translate to the English word new. The first one is naos, which means it's brand new. It's like a newborn, or you build a house that wasn't there before, now that is a new house. But that's not actually the word that John uses for new. He uses a different Greek word. The Greek word is kainos, which means renewed or restored. The idea here is like if you said, you know what, I'm really going to dial things in. I'm going to get my eating under control. I'm going to start working out. And you say, I feel like a brand new person. You're not fundamentally new. You've just been made new. You've been renewed. That's the word John uses. The scope of history is not God's going to burn this whole thing up and start over. It's that he's going to rescue, renew, and restore creation. And get this, my favorite part of that verse, it says, and the sea will be no more. Where else did we read about waters of chaos and disorder? In Genesis chapter 1, 
So God is actually working to bring heaven to earth, to rescue and restore this creation, to get rid of all chaos, disorder, destruction, death. There will be a day where there will be no more pain, no more suffering. He will wipe away every tear from every eye. That is where all of this is headed, God bringing heaven to earth. And so the question is, how is God going to do this? All right, so that's his mission to bring heaven to earth. How is he going to do it? I know I've said this before, but for some reason that I will never understand, God has chosen the least efficient method possible to accomplish his mission. He's chosen to use people because people screw things up. At least I screw things up. But if you look in the Old Testament, God comes to a man named Abram. He says, Abram, if you leave everything behind and follow me, if you just trust me, then your descendants are going to become this mighty nation, and I'm going to use them to show the world what heaven on earth looks like. I'm going to use that kingdom to be my people, to transform this whole place. In fact, he says, I want them to be a light to the world. All the nations will have a relationship with me because of your descendants. Now, Abram's descendants become the nation of Israel. And the first time we encounter them as this massive nation is actually in the opening pages of the book of Exodus. Now, when we meet them, they're actually enslaved in Egypt and have been enslaved for over 400 years. Now, you all have seen the Prince of Egypt, so we're going to skip ahead in the story, all right? But you know the whole parting of the waters, go through that. There's some great music. I'm not going to try to sing it this morning. You're welcome. So God delivers them out of slavery into freedom. Fascinating to note. One of the first thing God does is he leads them to a mountain called Sinai where he enters into this covenant relationship. Think like marriage with his people. And they're given a ton of commands. They get summarized in the Ten Commandments. Now, a different sermon for a different time is I don't think the Ten Commandments apply to us as Christians today. We, if you have a question, feel free to text it into that text line. We'd answer questions at the end of every message. But I think the Ten Commandments get a bad rap sometimes. Because what it sounds like is, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. No murder, no adultery, no stealing, no fun. Just be boring, lame people. But if you remember who these people are, all they have ever known their entire life was being slaves. Now, as a slave, you are only worth what you can produce. You're told your entire life your value is wrapped up in how many bricks you can make, how much work you can do. And so how many days off every year do slaves get? Not a lot. They don't get three-day weekends and overtime pay with benefits. They're just to work, work, work. And so when God says, remember the Sabbath, he's not trying to pin them down to a day off. He's trying to remind them, you are not what you produce. By the way, I think that many of us, we may not be physically enslaved, but we're just as enslaved to that mentality today. That we feel like we have to work, we have to earn, we have to get our 401k to a certain level, and we have to have this house and send our kids to this school and have all this stuff. And so we're driven, and that's why I think Sabbath is just as radical for us today as it was for the Israelites back then. I mean, think about uh, don't steal from other people. Well, when you're a slave, you don't get to own things. You're not a real person. It doesn't belong to you. Anything could be taken at any time. God says, no, no, every one of you is made in my image, and so you can't just take things from other people. You can go through every single one of the Ten Commandments, and God is saying, listen, I have rescued you from slavery, but now I have to teach you how to actually be free. Right? Because just because you've been set free doesn't mean you know how to be free. 
There's something called the recidivism rate. I can't believe I said that the first time the right way. It's the amount of people who get released from prison in the U.S. who end up back in prison because our prison system doesn't teach people how to be free. It teaches them how to be slaves. Guess what? Sin and death, they don't teach you how to be free. They teach you how to be slaves. And so, yeah, they experienced freedom, but then they had to learn how to be free. Now, God establishes them as this nation. And as free people, they're supposed to show the world what it looks like to be free from sin and death. So they have these like guidelines they follow that are very different from most people. So yes, like circumcision and eating kosher, those set them apart. But my favorite ones in the Old Testament that nobody really seems to talk about a lot is like, um, we're, every few years, we're going to forgive all the debt. Like, let's bring that Old Testament law back, right? Or every few years, let's let all the slaves go free return land to its original owner. Like, let's do all these radical things because that's what heaven on earth looks like. And I would love to tell you that they did this and everything flourished. But if you look at the story of Israel, there were some commands they kept, but never once did they free the slaves. Never once did they return the land to its original owner. And you know they didn't forgive no debt. They didn't do any of those. In fact, over time, it was less and less of God's commands that they followed. So they get to the point where God says, I'm not going to force myself on you. You don't have to be in a relationship with me. And he removes his protection. God's kingdom is conquered by their enemies and they are enslaved. And the Old Testament near the end has all these questions like, do sin and death always win? Like, is God's kingdom gone forever? Is it just impossible for heaven to come to earth? And the Old Testament prophets give this note of hope where they say, no, there's going to be somebody who comes and just like Moses, he will lead people out of slavery and he will establish God's kingdom and he will bring heaven to earth once and for all. Now, of course, they're thinking, okay, we're going to be led out of captivity from our captors, we'll be reestablished as the nation of Israel, and then God's kingdom will be here, heaven will have come to earth. But when Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, guess what? All those prophecies, they point to me, I've come to bring heaven to earth. People have all these expectations that Jesus defies over and over and over again. In fact, instead of taking up arms against the Romans, Jesus actually teaches his followers to serve them. You know that famous phrase, go the extra mile? You know it comes from Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He says that if a soldier forces you to carry their stuff for one mile, which was law in the Roman Empire, a Roman soldier could stop anybody at any time. Didn't matter if you were taking the kids to soccer. I don't know if they played soccer back then. Doesn't matter if you were in the middle of a a market run, if it was the middle of your work day. If a Roman soldier needed help, he could stop whatever you're doing and make you carry all of his stuff for up to one mile. And Jesus says, when they ask you to go one mile and you get to the end of that, volunteer to go the second mile. Because at the first mile, you're going as a captor, but as a second mile, you're doing it out of love. You're actually loving your enemies. So you start to see why people were frustrated at Jesus. No, Jesus, we're supposed to overthrow Rome. We're not supposed to serve them. But everywhere Jesus goes, he's reversing the effects of sin and death, right? He's healing people who are sick. He's casting out demons. He's raising people from the dead. He is bringing heaven to earth. And what thanks does he get for it? One of his closest friends betrays him. He's wrongly convicted, and he's executed. And when they put his body in the tomb, his disciples are left thinking, if even Jesus couldn't bring heaven to earth, then do sin and death just get the final word? Is this just the way things are always going to be? Did God fail his mission? But after three days, Jesus rose from the dead. 
Like Jesus delivered the death blow to sin and death. In fact, one of my favorite parts of the Easter story that nobody talks about is that when Jesus died, it said there was an earthquake and all these dead people started walking out of the tombs. Right? Like that's more like walking dead, less like Easter. And yet it's the reality that when Jesus died, he delivered a death blow to death. It's like death momentarily lost its grip on these people and they just start walking around. And when Jesus rose from the dead, the New Testament authors are wrestling with this, like, what does this mean? And they use the metaphor that Jesus is the first fruits. Like, Jesus defeated sin and death, and that means for everyone who follows him, we see his resurrection, and we know we have the hope for resurrection ourselves. It doesn't mean that we won't experience the sting of sin and death in this life, but we know that when we follow Jesus, we will be resurrected to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth. And if sin and death couldn't stop Jesus, then they're never going to stop Jesus from restoring, rescuing, and redeeming all of creation. Is this, are we tracking so far? So God's mission is to bring heaven to earth. He wants to do it through people. And so the question is, how does this practically apply to us? Well, I think if you look at how God used his people, even how God used Jesus, I think there's, there's three things that I want us to look at over the course of this series that, that we need to do and we need to be a part of if we're going to bring heaven to earth. And those three things are this. The first thing, we need to experience freedom. Then we need to embody Jesus. And we need to expand heaven. And you know it's true because they all start with E words, right? Like that's good pastor stuff right there. So I want to take a moment, I'm going to walk through each of these, just give a few remarks, and then we're just going to spend the next few weeks looking at each one of these things and how that's actually going to help bring heaven to earth. So I want to start by talking about how we experience freedom. Because we know we're slaves to sin and death. Well, like We know what it's like to be enslaved. And when we follow Jesus, he says, all right, you've been set free. But now we actually have to learn how to be free. We actually have to learn how to experience this for ourselves. And so how are we going to do that? When all we've ever known is slavery, how do we experience freedom? It's when we spend time with Jesus. And I know you're like, Matt, you went to seminary to tell us that, right? Like, it, it sounds so simple, but the reality is it is so easy to live life apart from Jesus. It's so easy to say we spend time with him, but actually to live our lives apart from him. I think I've shared with you guys before that this year, one of my um, practices that I'm working on is I read this book where this guy made it his goal for, to uh, hear Jesus every moment of every day. And I was thinking, okay, that's expert level Christianity, right? I'm not starting there. I was like, but every 15 to 30 minutes, I could do that, right? I mean, just wherever I'm at, in coffee shop, having a conversation, wherever, just in my mind, I'm asking Jesus, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to hear in this moment? That's all it is. And the first time I did this, I realized there is a large majority of my day where I'm just not with Jesus. Like, I'm living my life apart from Jesus. That, that if I didn't have him, if he wasn't, you know, um, using me in some powerful way, my life would not fundamentally look different. And I began to be convicted that how easy is it for us to go throughout our lives, and we can talk about Jesus, and we'll spend a few moments with him, but the large majority of our life is not spent with him. But the reality is Jesus shows us what it's like to be fully human. One of my favorite things, if you ever want to study this, study the miracles that Elijah performed next to the miracles that Jesus performed. Because when people say, why, why did Jesus, why was he able to perform miracles? A lot of times people say, well, it's because he's God's son. Except that Elijah and Jesus almost did the same miracles. 
Elijah took a little bit of food and extended out over a long amount of time. Jesus took a little bit of food and spread it among 5,000 people. Elijah went in and prayed over a dead child. That child came back to life. Jesus went in, prayed over a dead child. That child came back to life. At the end of Elijah's life, he doesn't die. He ascends into heaven. And after Jesus' resurrection, he doesn't die again. He ascends into heaven. So I don't believe that Elijah was the son of God. So how was he able to do the same things that Jesus was? Because there's one thing that they both had in common, and that was that they were both empowered by the Holy Spirit. Bible says very specifically that they both were able to do this because they had the Holy Spirit. And here's the beautiful thing, that from the the time Jesus leaves his followers, he says, guess what? I'm going to leave because you're going to do greater things, because you're going to get the Holy Spirit. There's a whole bunch of debate. What does he mean by greater things? Is he bigger, better things? I don't know. Jesus rose people from the dead. I don't know how you get much greater than that. And some theologians say, well, he just meant greater in number, greater in quantity. And maybe, I don't know, but I do know this. Whatever he meant by greater, he did not mean lesser things. And really, we have access to that same Holy Spirit to empower us to look like Jesus, but it requires us to be close to him, to spend time with him. Because when we look at Jesus, we don't just see the Son of God. We see a human fully alive. And the more time we spend with him, the more freedom we begin to experience. So here's a simple question you can ask yourself this week to take a step in this direction is how can I be with Jesus? How can I spend time with him? How can I just sit in his presence? By the way, that's why every week we do communion here at Bridgepoint, because your life is not going to be transformed by an amazing sermon today. Let me just set the bar real low for you. In fact, the two most important things that you can do on a Sunday morning is spend time with Jesus at communion and spend time with each other in the lobby, because that's where real life change happens, when we come together like that. But if we're going to experience freedom, we've got to be with Jesus. The second thing we need to do is we need to embody Jesus. So as we experience freedom and he begins to transform us, we we start to live in freedom, we need to embody Jesus as individuals, but also we need to embody Jesus as a church. And, And I think sometimes it's easy to talk about, yeah, we want people to experience freedom. We want to get to the expand heaven. Like those are great. But is this embodying Jesus part? That's hard. Because I think sometimes Christians and churches with the best of intentions want people to experience freedom and they want to expand heaven, but they don't want to do it in a way that embodies Jesus. So they'll want to use manipulation, coercion, they'll want to use the methods of the world, but you don't get new creation results with old creation tactics. It has to be done in the way of Jesus and we actually have to grow to look like him. And that's the thing, discipleship is an ongoing process. Right, like for, for the Israelites, they came out of slavery, but it was an ongoing process. When we follow Jesus, it's going to take a long time, the rest of our lives, to look more and more like him. I wish I could just say a prayer, Jesus, make me more like you, and boom, it's done, and I could move on to the next thing. But it's this ongoing process of growth. In fact, there's a pastor and author, Jim Putnam. He talks about spiritual growth as like stages of physical growth. And so I just wanted to share this with you. This has been super helpful for me. So he'll talk about like the first stage in spiritual growth is you're spiritually unborn. That's like you need to experience freedom and you need to trust in Jesus for the first time. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that. I assume the vast majority of people here, you probably are maybe at least at the next step, which is as a spiritual infant. I don't know if you've ever been around infants. I love babies, right? They're so cute, especially when they're fat and they got all those rolls on. They're like, oh, don't you just want to squeeze them? And you know why they look so cute? Because otherwise we'd kill them. (laughs) 
because they're selfish, right? Like, they, they, oh, dad had a long day. I won't wake him up at 2. They do not care when they're hungry. They're messy. They're dirty. I mean, you're doing like 18 outfit changes. I mean, it, when you're in it, it's rough, right? But, but by the way, that's normal and expected for an infant. That those are the same things that we love about infants. What we don't want is for them to be 40 years old needing a diaper change. But the reality is, when we first decide to follow Jesus, we're a spiritual infant. And that's great, as long as we don't stay there. Don't be a 40-year follower of Jesus who's still an infant, who's still needing a diaper change. But listen, people in the spiritual infancy stage, it's messy. Because you're coming in and you're having to learn the very first steps of experiencing freedom and looking like Jesus. So you got to learn all of it. So a lot of times, people who are still spiritual infants, they have a lot of their old worldview mixed in with Jesus. So maybe it's like a lot of new age thinking and a little bit of Jesus. Or a lot of my political parties thinking and a little bit of Jesus. Or a lot of my way of life and a little bit of Jesus. And so what we have to do is we have to start to know what do we need to cut out and what do we need to cling to. And that's why really at this stage, to grow out of spiritual infancy, it's all about spiritual practices. If you've been at Bridgepoint for any length of time, we have eight spiritual practices we think are unique to, to like our church and our season of life. And of these eight, we ask everybody to pick two to focus on for one year. So there's Sabbath, silence and solitude, prayer, scripture reading, fasting, worship, confession, and giving. And we always say, just pick two. And I'm the kind of guy, I'm like, I'm going to pick the two hardest ones, right? So Sabbath and fasting, I'm going after it. But I tell people, actually, start with the two easiest ones. Like, we need to get some wins here at the beginning. So, like, if silence and solitude is your thing, start with that. Maybe fasting is your thing. It's not my thing. But if it is, start with that. Because as we engage in these practices, it starts to shape our lives more like Jesus and less like everything else. And then we can grow out of spiritual infancy, and we can become a spiritual child, now, children are great because all of a sudden, children, they reach a certain age and they can start to contribute around the house, right? They, my kids ask me sometimes, Dad, why are you asking me to take out the trash? Like, why do you think I had you, right? We had too many chores to do. We needed some help. We had some kids. But kids are great and kids start to help out, but they're still selfish. In fact, I um, took my kids to the pool yesterday, and I don't know if you've ever been to a public pool besides the 13 Band-Aids floating around in there somewhere. There's always like eight different groups of kids, and they're all completely unaware of anything outside of themselves, right? They're like splashing water on people sitting on the side. They're throwing footballs into other people's heads, and, and they're just having the best time of their life. No self-awareness. So yesterday, I was being the grumpy guy sitting in my pool chair, and I'm just complaining to my wife, and she said, you know, that's part of being a kid, right? Like, that's normal. And in a spiritual child stage, this is where you're starting to do some things. You're like, yeah, you know what? I, I, I'm going to serve, but I'm only going to do it when it fits in my schedule. Yeah, you know, I'll show up and I'll help that person as long as it's not an inconvenience to me. And I'll be there as long as I don't have anything better to do. And by the way, it's okay to be a spiritual child. It's okay to be at that stage of growth and development. Just don't get stuck there. And at this spiritual development stage, what you really need to do is you need to be connected with other people who are helping you grow in your faith. Because, you know, kids start to act like the people they're around. Like, I can tell when my kids have been hanging around certain people because they have certain attitude or they're, like, super great. So we love having those kids around. 
But in the same way, if we want to look more like Jesus, we have to be surround, we have to surround ourselves with people who are going to help us grow and people who are going to push us to move out of our selfishness and into a selflessness so we can grow into the next stage, which is young adulthood. And young adulthood, this is, you know, think teenagers, 20. This is like you're independent, you're growing in yourself. A, a spiritual young adult is somebody who they're taking initiative. Or like you see somebody who's, who's in need, and you're not waiting for the church to come up with some solution to it. You're, you're saying, hey, I'm going to meet that need over there. Hey, I'm going to show up, and I'm going to bring that person a meal. I'm going to serve my neighbor. I'm going to have this person over to dinner. You're like taking the initiative there. But what young adults need is they just need some parents to come along and just guide them, just not micromanage or anything else, but just give them a little bit of help so they can get to that last stage, which is a spiritual parent. And I know sometimes, I remember one time I was talking about being spiritual parents and somebody said, um, that can be a tough topic for people who have been unable to have biological children. And so I, I sympathize with that. But the beautiful thing about being a spiritual parent is you can have spiritual children even if you never have biological children. It has a beautiful thing. I have a group of men that I am discipling in and I am like trying to parent them. And I have told them like, one day I don't just want to be a spiritual parent. I want to be a spiritual grandparent because that means you've grown up and now you're discipling other people and you're helping other people grow from infancy into childhood, into young adulthood and so on. And see, that's the kind of legacy and heritage that I want to leave. In the New Testament, Paul says, you have thousands of teachers but you don't have many spiritual fathers. I think we, we live in a day and age where we have access to great Bible teaching, right? You have so many teachers, but what we all need are spiritual parents. Now, if you're like me, you're looking at this list and you're like, okay, which one am I? And I think the best thing you can do is ask somebody else where they think you are, because I promise some of you think you're young adults, but you're actually still spiritual children. Some of you might think you're parents, but you're actually still an infant, and ask other people to speak into that, not in a judgmental way, but you got to know where you are so that you know how you can grow. And here's the question I want you to ask yourself as you think about embodying Jesus is, how do I become like Jesus? What are some things I can do this week to become like Jesus? And I will just tell you, like for me, it would sound like a broken record. It always comes back to the spiritual practices. Because the more you spend time in these practices, the, the goal is not to get you to be really good at taking a Sabbath. The goal is to help you become more like Jesus. And those are all tools that the Holy Spirit will use to help you become like him. And then the last thing, after we experience freedom and embody Jesus, then we want to expand heaven. We actually want to do the work of bringing heaven to earth, like doing the work of serving people. Like, and here's the beautiful thing. When you understand that God's goal is to bring heaven to earth, there's no such thing as like secular work and gospel work. Because right, sometimes you think, well, it's good, we'll feed people who are hungry, but then we'll share the gospel. So they like really get the stuff. No, sharing food with people who are hungry, that is gospel work. That's bringing heaven to earth. Like bringing clean drinking water to people in developing countries, that is gospel work. But the way that Jesus accomplished this is very different than the way we think. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes you're like, oh, well, we're a smaller church, so what can we do? Listen, Jesus never once tried to leverage power and authority and influence through the government or big organizations. Jesus never went after titles, but he did pick up a towel. And the way Jesus brought heaven to earth was individual relationships where he would go and he would serve. And to actually serve people in a way that is costly. I mean, you think about it. What is the defining picture we have of Jesus and his ministry? It's the cross. 
Like Jesus humbled himself to the point that he was executed for the people that he loved. And we have to have that same mentality. By the way, I don't know about you, but I don't think there's ever a convenient time to get on the cross. I don't think it really fits in my schedule to get on the cross. But kind of the theological word is we're called to live a cruciform life, a life formed by the cross. At this point, I think I have a minute. We can go ahead and open it up to Q&A. We got a text in question. Are there ways to help us think about Jesus throughout the day more? Great, great question. By the way, I think I said this on our Q&A Sunday at the end of the last series. We do Q&A on Sundays, not because the answers are great, but because the questions are great. I think we just need to foster a mentality with our faith that we should be asking questions. It's okay to ask questions and follow Jesus. And by the way, are there ways to think about Jesus more throughout the day? Listen, if you get some, please let me know. Like, that is a great question. But again, I'm going to sound like I'm beating the same drum. I'll just go back to spiritual practices. Like, that's really, the goal of a spiritual practice is just to help you think about Jesus more. So, so try this. For the last year or so, I've been trying to implement silence and solitude. So if you will just take your cup of coffee as soon as you get up in the morning and sit down in a chair at your dining room table or in the living room and don't pick up your phone, don't pick up your phone, don't pick up your phone. I would say don't even pick up your Bible. But if you were just to sit there for three minutes and picture Jesus sitting in the chair next to you or across from you. Don't, you don't even have to pray. You don't have to say anything. You just sit there and picture Jesus. I promise you what I have found is that that three minutes sets the tone for my day. So when I'm sitting at the coffee shop, I can feel Jesus sitting in that chair across from me. When I'm walking around this room during the week, I can see Jesus sitting in these chairs. I'm more aware that he's with me. By the way, that practice of confession, I don't think anybody loves that one. But when you confess to somebody that you lost your temper, you lost your cool, and all of a sudden the next time you can feel your blood start to boiling, all of a sudden you're very aware of Jesus' presence because you know you're going to have to confess this later. Like all the practices, they're just supposed to bring Jesus to our mind every day. I cannot urge you enough of all those eight, pick two. And at least if somebody were to ask you what's your two, I hope you have an answer. I really hope that you would do them, but at least have an answer for the two that you're working on. Great, great question. And so we're talking about expanding heaven here. And so the last question I want you to wrestle with this week is how can I serve like Jesus? How can I serve like Jesus? How can I serve in a way that it may be costly? How can I serve in a way that may not be convenient? You know, I love this story um, in Jesus' ministry where he's, uh, he's walking through this town and there's this big crowd gathered to see him and somebody shows up and says, Jesus, my daughter's dying. She needs your help. The doctors can't save her. Will you come and heal her? Jesus says, yes. So as he turns to go help her, all of a sudden, this woman kind of pushes her way through the crowd, reaches out and touches Jesus. Jesus' attention is diverted. Now he's talking to this woman. They're having this conversation. And, and she's healed. Everything's great. It's this great moment. And while all this is going on, the first guy gets word from his household that his daughter has died. And they said, don't even bother Jesus anymore. And I got to imagine that guy's sitting there and he's got to be frustrated. He's like, wait a second. This isn't fair. I was here first. Wait, 
Jesus was already said he was going to heal my daughter, and now he got distracted by you. And I got to assume that there's some frustration, there's some sadness, there's some questioning going on. Now, the good news at the end of that story, Jesus still goes and he raises this girl from the dead. And see, I think what Jesus knew is the thing that we forget. We have a scarcity mentality sometimes. I only have this much time. I only have this much resource. I only have this much stuff. Jesus wasn't worried because he knew that death wasn't going to have the final word. And because death wasn't going to have the final word, he was open to holy interruptions. And I wonder sometimes if we have not opened ourselves up to holy interruptions because we have a scarcity mentality with our time, with our finances, with our energy, We say, I just don't have enough to go around. And so what I think serving looks like when it looks like Jesus is we're serving even when it hurts, even when it comes at a cost. You know, we have a great opportunity to do that this coming Wednesday. This is the first of our Woodstock Wednesdays throughout the month of June. We're just serving in our community in different ways. You guys have seen, you guys have been bringing in um, uh, food all throughout the month of May. We're going to be compiling some meals for kids who aren't going to have meals otherwise right here in Cherokee County. And I can just tell you, keep bringing the food in. We need People say, what do we need? I don't know. We just need all of it. So keep bringing it in. But on Wednesday night at 6 p.m. right here in the auditorium, we're going to be assembling these meals together. Together. Great opportunity to bring all, kids of all ages can come and be a part of this. What a great opportunity to even teach the next generation this is what it looks like to be Jesus and to expand heaven here on earth. And so we're going to continue to keep that going. That's a simple opportunity, but I promise you, you'll have opportunities each and every day. You'll have opportunities, these holy interruptions, these moments where you're going to have an opportunity to expand heaven and to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to have our time of communion. Our prayer stations will be open. There are prayer jars there, so you just write your prayer out and put those in. Nobody's going to see that. That's between you and God. We have candles as well. You can light a candle. Candles throughout church history have represented a prayer going up to God, and so that's just what, however you want to respond in this next moment. But as you do, I want you to wrestle with those three questions. How can I be with Jesus? How can I become like Jesus? And how can I serve like Jesus. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Jesus, we're so thankful. We're thankful that you defeated sin and death and that they don't get the final word, but that you do. And we're trusting and believing that heaven is coming to earth. We're trusting and believing that you will fulfill your mission. And God, we just want to be a part of it. So we thank you that you died on the cross. You forgave our sin. You made a way for us to experience freedom. And I pray for each and every person here that we would have that time with you, that we would start to become like you, that everywhere we go this week, we would serve like you. Because Jesus, we just want to be more like you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Bridgepoint Church Podcast. I hope we've shared something meaningful for you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little bit more about us, we meet on Sunday mornings in downtown Woodstock, but we also meet during the week in what we call life groups, and that's where the really good stuff happens for us. If you're becoming a regular listener of this podcast, we'd like to invite you to make it relational, just like we do during the week. Grab a Bible, invite some friends to join you, and turn this into a conversation. If you're already a regular listener and would like to support this ministry financially, You can do so by visiting us online at bpc.life and choosing the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening.